This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So glad you can be with us today here on the Bible Line. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions Maybe there's a particular challenge in your life or ministry and you're looking for biblical counsel. If we can be of help, the local 843 exchange is 525-1859, 525-1859, or toll-free, the 877 toll-free number is simply the call letters, WAGP 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio and that address is TBL. It stands for The Bible Line, tbl at wagp.net. You may not know it. People leave this area sometimes, and they say, oh, I miss WAGP. And I spoke recently to someone. I said, you can hear us all over the world at wagp.net. We broadcast 24-7. And that's important. You know, there's places. We have a lot of Canadian listeners and uh, who have told me over the years, some who come down here and winter here, how much the station means to them and the difference it's made in their life because there is no Christian radio in all of Canada. It was outlawed a number of years ago. Anyway, with that said, we're ready to get started. If you call in live, we will give you preference. You can dictate your question or you can um, go on the air live. In either case, let's go ahead and we'll begin. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Sue out of Bluffton, South Carolina. She writes, I came across a book called The Beauty of Intolerance, and it is by the McDowell Ministry. What do you know about the McDowells, and are they credible uh, teachers of God's Word? Well, I've known Josh McDowell um, since I was in college. and In fact, my senior year, as I headed the Campus Crusade movement at Boston College, we orchestrated for Josh to come in and to do uh, his classic presentation. It used to be called Maximum Sex, which was a real ringer in the 1970s on college campus, but it would bring out potentially hundreds, even thousands of students, depending on how large the campus was. And uh, he was I, indeed, uh, I think, a noted apologist then as he is now. His first work was uh, more than, well, not more than a carpenter, but um, that was certainly one of his works. And I think the most uh, quoted, most translated work, but it was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it's still a good work. It's in a, a few volumes, and uh, evidence that demands a verdict, and more evidence that de- demands a verdict is volume two. And uh, he presented, I think, in a relatively easy read fashion, how um, you could defend your Christian faith. And he did it on a very popular level. And I don't know how many books he's written, probably 50, maybe 100 for all I know, tons and tons and tons of books. He had a whole staff that did research for him. I knew some of those because Josh McDowell was on staff with Campus Crusade. He's punchy. He's got to be in his mid-80s by now, Um, but he's a great man. He got married late in life. I think he was 36 or 39, and uh, they had uh, Sean, and Sean now is basically 
uh, taking over that ministry. And so they write books together, co-author some works. The beauty of intolerance is he's speaking of kind of a redefinition of tolerance versus intolerance. It used to be when we used the word tolerance, we meant, well, you can have your view and I can have my view. I may think my view is right. I may think your view is wrong. But nonetheless, we will be tolerant. We'll respect one another. We will agree to disagree. We won't slit each other's throat over this. Well, the whole term has been redefined. And so tolerance now is very, very different. By definition, basically, they're saying, if you really care about people the way I care about people, then you're going to see that my beliefs, my values, my um, view on life is the right view. And if you don't see it that way, then you're an intolerant person. And so the Christian today who defends, say, traditional marriage or speaks against perverted sexual expressions like homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever the situation might be, you're called a bigot. You're called judgmental. You're called homophobic because you stand on the truth of Scripture. So his book, The Beauty of Intolerance, is basically saying it's a beautiful thing to say that there is absolute standards that we must believe, that we must espouse, that we must preach. And if people have trouble with that and they call us intolerant, then that's a beautiful thing because it means we've stood for what's right. So anything by Josh McDowell's ministry is going to be good. He, he's a good sound brother, and I really appreciate him because he's. Uh, I just saw him recently, and I don't know if you can look up on the internet how old Josh is. Just type in Josh McDowell, how old is he? But I know he's in his uh, mid-80s or somewhere around there. I've known him since 1977 personally, and uh, he, he's a great brother in the Lord. And how old is he? Uh, 84, Pastor Carl. 84 years old, and he's still punching hard. He's still uh, serving the Lord faithfully. So good. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question comes from Gladys out of Okatee, South Carolina, and she writes, I believe that God knows the past, present, and future. I am a believer, but I had a question which I'm sure you have been asked many times before. God must have known that Adam and Eve and others were going to fail. He hardened hearts for his purpose, and he planned to have Judas betray Jesus. So if God knew all of this, why didn't he just stop it before it got worse? He gave us free will, so he knew we would fail. I also feel that because the Jewish people are his chosen people, I feel left out because I am not a Jew. Well, all right, let me uh, let me respond. And you got two questions there. We try to limit it to one, but uh, I'm turning now to the book of Genesis and in Genesis 2.16, uh, it reminds us that when God created man, he created him with a free will. Uh, the scripture says first in a great Trinitarian verse, it says in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so one aspect of being made in the Imago Dei is that you are a free moral agent. We offer a series of courses in the Institute of Biblical Studies. Uh, it's found at searchthescriptures.org. And one of the courses people take is on anthropology. And uh, there are lessons they have to listen to and 
note-taking outlines that they fill out, books that they read. It's basically taught on a master's level, but one of the papers they write is what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And one aspect of it is that you're a free moral agent. God didn't make you like a robot, but he made you with the ability to choose. So let me just back up for a second and just remember the big picture of Scripture, what sometimes theologues call the meta-narrative. God created the world in... Basically, his Bible can be described as a picture of paradise. Those are the early chapters, first two chapters of Genesis. Then paradise lost, that's Genesis 3, all the way through virtually the end of Revelation. And then in the last two chapters of Revelation, paradise regained. And so without question, the focus of the Bible is with paradise regained. God is giving an explanation of how he's going to redeem man and save man. God obviously is omniscient, and God knew in advance what man would do. And of course, he knew what his son would do. When Peter stood up on Pentecost, he says that this man, this one, speaking of Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So all that happened was according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And so the fall of man was foreknown by God. Prognosco. God knew in advance, and how he would solve the problem was also foreordained. It was predetermined by God. But with that said, you know, why did God allow this to happen, knowing what would happen? Well, everything that God does ultimately is for his glory. I preached a whole sermon once in Romans 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And so even man's rebellion somehow is an expression of God's um, glory. Uh, God knows all things. Um, Isaiah says that God declares the beginning from the end. I've just turned here to Psalm 139, and I love this psalm. Uh, King David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. Uh, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. That's a picture of the omniscience of God, that he's over every aspect of his creation. He knows every thought that you think. And in that same great psalm, he'll say, the days that were ordained even before there was yet one were all recorded in God's book. So God definitely knew, as I'm trying to underscore, what Adam and Eve would do, but he created them anyway. Why did he create Adam and Eve? I heard a preacher recently say, because God was lonely. God wasn't lonely. God doesn't need anything. God is complete in and of himself. Um, But he created man, one, so that we could enjoy him, and two, that he would glorify his name. Uh, And so he makes them in his image. He gives them the capacity to make choices. And of course, with that said, Their fall doesn't mean that God's the author of sin. He's not. The scripture clearly teaches in James 1 that God doesn't tempt anyone by evil. God is sinless. Now, he may use sin and even the wrath of man for his glory and to praise him, but he's not the author of sin. But ultimately, even the fall of man serves God's ultimate and overall purposes. And we would never really know about grace if we didn't need grace, but we need grace. So there are dimensions of the character of God that are shown even through the fall of man. And so God is sovereign. 
He created man as a free moral agent. If God didn't know that Adam was going to rebel, God wouldn't be God. He's omniscient. But in creating him as a free moral agent, Adam and you with Adam, remember, you'll never get to heaven and say, Adam, man, look what you put me through in this life. We inherited your sin nature. No, uh, you sinned in and with Adam. The Bible affirms the, his federal headship and the solidarity of the human race. And so Paul can say in Romans five twelve, when Adam sinned, all sinned. Uh, but God in his grace and his mercy also had in his heart before the foundation of the world that he would send a savior or redeemer who would die for us. That's a great question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question comes in as a live dictation, Pastor Carl. It is from Richard out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and he would like to know, as a young pastor, he has heard many people talk about pastor burnout. Is there any advice that you could offer him or any other young pastors? Well, Richard, I'm glad you called, and I try to give special attention and focus to pastors. They call the church. Many call my private line because I simply... Uh, was able to introduce them to Christ, maybe as students and in other capacities, and they've had my phone number for 30 years, and so they'll call, and and I want to help young pastors especially because they're the next generation of leaders. I would say first and foremost, you need to watch over your own heart with all diligence, for from it come the issues of life. And so ministry can get especially taxing. Uh, last week, it was intensely busy for me, I wanted to have three hours with my grandson on Saturday, but that meant a late Saturday night. It meant Sunday when I came in. I arrived here in this building at 6.15 in the morning, and I was uh, here until late at night uh, trying to finish everything I needed. I was going to take Monday, and I thought, oh, I'll just, I've got to get this handout done for Wednesday. But then I said, no, I'm violating my own rules. You need one day and seven to rest. And God created the world in six days, and in one day he rested, not because he was tired, but he was setting an example for us of our need for rest. We know that from, among other passages, Exodus chapter 20. And so let me just read Exodus chapter 20 to you. Um, Moses is really giving some divine commentary here in the Decalogue. The Decalogue, of course, is a term used to refer to the Ten Commandments. I know this pastor knows it, but not... Every listener does. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And so just as God literally created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh, even so we work in six. So you have to have one day of rest. And so generally speaking, I try not to do any ministry on a Monday uh, unless I just feel like it's absolutely critical for the setup of the week. But I try not to unless it's a funeral. Uh, people call me on Mondays sometimes, even though they know it's my day off, and they'll say, I know it's your day off, Pastor. And so generally what I don't do is I don't answer the phone on a Monday because I have to have a day just to kind of unload, and you need that as a pastor. And if you don't have that, then you're going to fail in your ministry. You will burn out. In fact, that's generally true for most aspects of life. You need to have a day to refresh and to, um, 
you know, reset your mind for the week. You also need not only one day and seven to refresh, you need some time every day to refresh. And so apart from sermons, apart from ministry needs that people have, you need a time alone with God. And so that's how I start my day. Now, I know some people are not morning people, and they say, well, that's how I end my day. I'm not judging you one way or the other. I'm just saying you need some time set aside every day where it's just you and God. And as a pastor, your temptation might be to work on a sermon during that time, and you could rationalize, well, I'm in the Word, but it's different. You need time for you where God is speaking to your heart, and you're thinking about you and your relationship to the Lord and how you can praise him. And so, A, your priority to the Lord's command to rest one day in seven, uh, your need to follow Jesus's example for us to come away to a quiet place, because if you don't come away, um, if you don't come apart, uh, literally the King James says come apart, uh, you will actually come apart. And the other aspect that you need to protect is your family. So your family is of high priority. You know, my wife and I have been married for 43 years, and I've dated her uh, once a week for 43 years, unless, of course, um, you know, away uh, in a foreign country and it's physically impossible. I did that yesterday. We went out together. We ran some errands. We did a little shopping. We went, had a meal together. It's important that you have some focused time with your wife, and she is to prioritize your children. Your children are important, but they need to see that the highest prioritized relationship apart from your relationship to God is with your wife. Um, And, you know, my kids saw that, and it's interesting that all my children who are married, they also have date nights with their wives, and occasionally they'll get away for a weekend if uh, the children are not nursing babies um, and they're able to pull it off, they'll do that at least once a year. That's something I modeled for them, and they see it as a high priority. And that's important because there will come a day when your children will grow up and they won't be in your home. And so when you've prioritized that relationship with your wife, which is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, then you've got some things in order. And so... This may sound pretty basic, but let me tell you, like, for instance, why it's so essential that you're alone with God in his presence. Because in the ministry, you're going to have a wide range of people in your church. You're going to have mature Christians who are going to support you, and then you're going to have new Christians who are going to just adore you because you, you maybe introduce them to the Lord Jesus, and they're so grateful that you share the gospel. But then you have some Christians who are either carnal and that they're out of fellowship with the Lord, or they reach the teenage adolescence years where in their spiritual life where they just kind of kick against you. And if you're not prepared for that, you will get discouraged. They will grumble. They will mumble. You can't seem to do anything right. But if you're walking in the center of God's will and you're obeying God, and you know that you're not compromising the truth, it kind of goes back to the first question we had concerning McDowell's book, The Beauty of Intolerance. It doesn't matter what people think. You can know because you're standing on truth that even if you're attacked in the midst of that, that you're pleasing to the Lord. And that's what's important. You know, if you please man and you don't please God, it really doesn't matter whom you please. But if you displease God and you please man, 
well, it doesn't matter what man you please. Your highest priority is to please the Lord. So you keep that relationship tight and focused. You follow the example of a day of refreshment, one day in seven, because the ministry is a 24-7 job. And people don't understand that. You know, the slam of 30 years ago is pastors work one hours one hour a week on Sunday morning from 11 to 12. And they have no idea that you might spend 25 or 30 hours in preparation for that sermon. They have no idea the time you spend alone in prayer. They have no idea the phone calls that come, the missionaries who have needs, pastors who call. They have absolutely no idea. Visitors you're following up to share the gospel with. They have no idea what you do um, in your hours. And so keep that in perspective. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question comes from John out of Savannah, Georgia, and he writes, why did Jesus seek out John the Baptist to have him baptize him? Also, where did the concept of baptism come from? That's good. Um, uh, a great question, and it's actually answered specifically for us in Matthew's gospel. Uh, let me turn here to Matthew 3. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's asking them to change their mind about sin, and John preached repentance and the need to get your heart ready. Remember, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. We were studying this uh, this past Sunday in Malachi 3.1, where you find both the messenger and my messenger, the forerunner, and the messenger, the Messiah. So it's not surprising that we'd find the forerunner and the Messiah in a single verse because the messenger of the Lord would be preceded by the one who would prepare his way. And so then it says, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And it describes John and what he's like and some of the pointedness of his message, especially to the religious hoi polloi who had an outward righteousness, but their hearts were not right. And so then it says here in verse 13, I'm leading up to the specific answer that Jesus gives as to why he sought John out. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So the reason Jesus is seeking out John is it's, it's fitting for us together through this act to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the question becomes, what does that mean to fulfill all righteousness? And it's important to understand that Matthew, his use of the term righteousness is different from Paul's. Paul uses the term dikaios, righteousness, to refer to imputed righteousness. That is the righteous standing God can give a fallen sinner in his sight, and he does it righteously without violating his just standards by providing a substitute. That's what we might call positional or imputed righteousness. It's given, it's gifted to you when you get saved. Obviously, Jesus already had imputed righteousness. He didn't even need to have it imputed. It was part of his character. He was immaculately conceived. The immaculate conception doesn't refer to Mary. 
it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he had no human father. A virgin will conceive and give birth. The sin nature is passed on through fallen parents. I'm a sinner because my dad gave it to me, and he got it from his dad. And, and the scripture speaks of the headship in the home of the father. And so without a human father, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb and took Christ's eternal deity and brought together perfect, sinless humanity in one person. So Jesus, by nature, is holy. He is righteous. But Matthew also uses the term righteousness to refer to ethical righteousness. And that's the display of righteousness, something the Pharisees grossly lacked. And so why then to be baptized? Well, I would agree with most biblicists that it's a picture of what Jesus is going to do. His baptism, and the word baptizo, can, its primary meaning means to immerse. Its secondary meaning means to identify. And so, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, where I, the, the Jewish people were identified with Moses in the cloud. There's no water there, but they were baptized with Moses in the cloud. Uh, but most often, the word is in reference to water, and it means literally to dunk or to immerse. It was used by fullers who dyed clothing for a living. If I had a white shirt and I wanted to dye it red, I would baptize it. That's the verb baptizo I would use into red dye, such that the white shirt would then turn red, and it would be identified with the red dye. And so we identify ourselves with Jesus when we are baptized. That's our confession of faith. And so sometimes we say, well, we're following Jesus's example in baptism. We're really not, because what Jesus did at his baptism was totally unique. He was coming to foreshadow the purposes of what he came to this earth to do, to die, to be buried, and to be raised. And that was all foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. So he's coming in obedience to the Father, because it's the Father's will for John to baptize him. And John's overwhelmed. In John's account, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal. And, you know, you're coming to me for baptism. He's not coming for the same reason that those sinners who were preparing their hearts for the coming of Messiah, he is Messiah, and he is stating publicly what he's going to do. And God is going to affirm that he's Messiah and that not only do you see the Lord Jesus being baptized, but you hear the voice from heaven and you see visibly the Holy Spirit coming as a dove, a theophany of sorts, an outward expression of his person coming uh, to picture again that Jesus is Lord. So he's coming to fulfill all righteousness. Baptism obviously was in play uh, before John. There was proselyte baptism and something that Jews did when a Gentile wanted to affirm that he was not just fearing the God of Israel, but he wanted to become a Jew religiously. He couldn't become a Jew ethnically uh, because you had to have been a son of Abraham. But just like in the book of Esther, where it says Gentiles were becoming Jews, they weren't changing their ethnicity, but they were basically affirming the God of Israel as the one true God. And for a Gentile to do that, he would go through proselyte baptism after he was circumcised, a sign of the covenant. So it's in play before that, but it can. there's actually seven different usages of baptism in the New Testament. 
um, and in the Bible as a whole. So what I might suggest you to do would be to go to searchthescriptures.org, click on the search bar that set and type in basic discipleship and read the 32-page handout on baptism because I give a very, very extended um, explanation of baptism. Every imaginable question you might ask, I think I've covered them. I sat down years ago and I said, what are all the questions I've been asked over and over and over again about baptism? You've asked one of them. I cover it in there, but in far more depth than I can do here in the program. So go to searchthescriptures.org. And by the way, if you're listening and you don't have that uh, app on your phone, you can download it. You can listen to the messages that go with all the handouts on your phone. And uh, you're out cutting the grass or driving down the highway and you want to plug in a message that might be edifying and helpful to you. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. We're going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Woody, who is live with us from Ridgeland, South Carolina. Good morning, Woody. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you today? Doing well, thanks. Go ahead. I uh, hope everything's well. Anyway, uh, my question is, uh, I'm driving, so my phone is a little problematic, but uh, hopefully I can get through. I can barely hear you, but... Let me see if I can do something here. Anyway, um, I have a student in my class that I'm teaching, and she uh, mentioned about Zacharias and Elizabeth and the fact that Zacharias is of the Levitical priesthood and of the tribe of Levi, uh, how he could be married to Elizabeth, who, being the cousin of Mary, maybe was not, and I don't know for sure if that's true, but was not of the Levitical the tribe of Levi, and so that would that disqualify him from being a high priest? So that's yeah, that's the a, it, it's a great I, question. I didn't think it would disqualify. Him. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, most would argue, and I would agree that Elizabeth was of the tribe of Judah. But with that said, remember, Jewishness is always determined by the father, by the head of the home. Now, sadly, because many Jews today. Uh, read not the scriptures, but they read what men wrote about the scriptures in the Mishnah and the Gemara, and we call that the Talmud, and there's actually two Talmuds. There's the Babylonian Talmud and the, and the Jerusalem Talmud, and, and it's uh, the oral traditions. And, of course, the Pharisees followed the oral traditions. Basically, they said, this is what Moses said this verse meant. The problem with the oral traditions is that they were more the traditions of men than they reflected the Word of God. That's not to say that everything in the Talmud didn't reflect the Word of God. So I raise this illustration because today Jewishness in the minds of most Jewish people who would fall into the Orthodox category that would even care about such issues would say that it's determined by the mother. That's the opposite of what Scripture teaches. Jewishness is not determined by the mother. Jewishness is determined by the Father, and like so with tribal identity. Why? Because of the headship. And so with that said, Moses, um, you know, he married the Cushite woman. Uh, he married a Cushite, and yet uh, he had sons that were considered uh, Levitical or of the tribe of Aaron. So they were, um, you know, in that whole tribe of Levi, not necessarily Levitical priests, but they were of the tribe of, uh, of Levi. Um, Joseph, he married an Egyptian. 
But that Egyptian, again, he was neither of these men were marrying unbelievers. Uh, God was clear. Generally speaking, you never marry a Gentile. Why? Because to marry a Gentile was to marry a pagan. But if that Gentile came and acknowledged the God of Israel as the one true God, then there was a potential opportunity to marry. And so his um, marrying Elizabeth, assuming she's from the tribe of, of Judah, and I think that's a fair assumption, though it's never specifically stated, but I think it's a fair assumption because of her relationship to Mary, who is from the tribe of Judah. With that said, um, I would say, no, it has absolutely no effect. And obviously it had no effect because God has him as a Levitical priest and he has him arrive at the temple. And, and most, there was a rotation of priests who would go into um, the holy place and, uh, you know, and it just so happens that on this particular occasion, it was Zechariah, and a man might only do that one time in his whole life, and yet he goes in, and in the process, um, you know, the, an angel of the Lord speaks to him, and, well, you know the story and what unfolded. So good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes in as a live dictation from William out of Walterboro, South Carolina, um, and he would like to know which Bible version is the best for a layperson or young pastor to preach from. And I think he's meaning NAS, ESV. Yeah, not, that's what uh, he's referring to. Yeah. yeah so uh, I would say um, the New American Standard, in my judgment, is still the gold standard. Uh, the ESV is good. The ESV is a remake of the RSV. When the RSV came out in the 1950s, uh, it really created a lot of stir. Um, there were people who said this is done by uh, liberal translators and um, it's not a good translation. And there were certainly some things that prejudicially uh, they um, interpreted accordingly, like the word propitiation has the idea of, um, of dealing with the wrath of God. But because of some of those liberal translators didn't view God as a God of holy wrath, they used the word expiation. And so there's a number of examples like that. In fact, I cover that in my course on bibliology. Um, nonetheless, you know, the RSV was still a very good translation. Some of my pr profs would jokingly call it the reverse standard version, the RSV. Uh, then the new RSV came out and that was really very, very liberal, um, and not faithful to scripture. But what's interesting is that because the new RSV came out, the RSV was available. And so the ESV translation board bought the rights to the RSV, which again created a real stir in evangelicalism because they paid $600,000 for the rights and the money went to the National Council of Churches, which is a total apostate organization. And you could look at it in two ways. You could say, well, they supported you know, an evil end, an organization that is totally apostatized from the Christian faith. And others would say, well, they rescued a, a translation that needed fixing. Um, in either case, ESV is a good translation. I still prefer the NAS, though sometimes understand there's not a single word that will render a particular Greek word. Uh, sometimes if you're trying to do in a there are different kinds of translations. There's, you know, a dynamic equivalent, a formal equivalent. A formal equivalent is as best as possible doing a word-for-word -word translation. But even that would be a little bit of a misnomer 
because if you go word for word, you would actually have an interlinear because word order in Greek is very different from word order in English. Sometimes the word that um, God, the Spirit, wants to emphasize is put as the first word in the sentence that grammatically wouldn't work in English. We don't, for instance, typically put the verb as the very first word in an English sentence. It's usually subject, verb, object. But sometimes God's Spirit would do that in order to underline or emphasize where you removed a word from its normal, typical word order to underscore a truth. But in a formal equivalent, you're as best as you can. You're trying to find a single word to translate that Greek word. Sometimes you can't use a single word, like tetelestai, in that particular word found in John 19.30. We render it, it is finished. Why? Because in that entire word are con- is contained not just a verb, but a, a full thought. Um, but the ESV does a good job sometimes giving a nuance that maybe the NAS would, or sometimes the King James does that. I open this program with sometimes study and show yourself approved, or sometimes I'll say be diligent and show yourself approved of God. Well, which is right. They're both right. Um, It's a word that you can render study, but sometimes a man or a woman can study, but it's not a very diligent study. And so the NASV went with the aspect of diligence, and so they rendered it be diligent, where the King James went with the um, uh, just the action itself, study. And so which are right, well, they're both actually correct. And so sometimes having two translations in front of you. I'll tell you, though, what happened. In 1984, the New International Version came out. And prior to that, the NAS version that was being used was the 78, and it was a little bit wooden. And I used that as a new Christian. I was given a New American Standard Version Bible. And uh, in the 78 uh, edition, actually, I, I had the one that was done in 72, and they updated it in 76, and then in 78, and, you know, there have been revisions over time, 91, 98, uh, and then most recently, 2020. Uh, But it was a little more wooden, but it was very, very, very true to the original language. And I've been blessed because I had four years of Greek and three years of Hebrew to be able to read the original languages and to prepare in them. And so when I prepare a sermon, I can just see the fine detail that the NES brings out. So what happened was the NIV came out, and it was a very good translation, but it was not what we would call a formal equivalent. It was more of a dynamic equivalent. So they would paraphrase a little bit. But before that, a lot of the folks that adopted the NIV had been using the King James, which had become very outdated. And the new King James Version, if I remember correctly, came out in 81, and some years later, uh, they released the Old Testament. So here you had in the early 80s a whole copy, a new fresh translation that communicated well. It's not that the King James was bad. The challenge was his English language changes. And given enough time, Uh, Sometimes words become very archaic, and we don't even know what they mean. And so it put the Bible at hand's length for a lot of people, especially someone who didn't grow up on the King James and was new to the faith. And so the NIV became the most popular translation. Well, when the NIV in 2011 came out with a new NIV, 
they changed it really pretty radically, and they took singular pronouns and they made them plural in order not to be offensive, say with the word he, we'll make it say they. Well, the problem with that is you change the meaning of the verse. And so it was actually a blend of the NIV, the TNIV and the old NIV, and they came up with the new NIV. So what happened then? A lot of people gravitated to the ESV because they thought, well, the NAS was still wooden, but by that time, the 98 edition had made it just a little bit more fluid, a little bit more readable, and even more so, I suppose, in the 2020. So so I prefer, and I don't think it's by accident, just think about some of the people on this station. David Jeremiah, he's known as a Bible expositor. What does he use? CNES. John MacArthur, he's known as a Bible expositor. What does he use? The NAS. Erwin uh, Lutzer, he's known as a Bible expositor. What does he use? The NAS. And so the NAS is used by most Bible expositors. If there's a denomination, and it's really not a denomination, but it's a change of related churches that are known for Bible exposition, the Calvary chapels, what do they use? Almost exclusively the NAS. Why? Because it is so precise. It is so precise to the original. So I have no problem with the ESV. It's a good translation. And if I go preach in a church and they want me to use the ESV, I'm more than happy to accommodate. Um, But I do think the NASB is still the gold standard. But with that said, don't be locked into it. Uh, Sometimes uh, it would be helpful for you. Uh, Sometimes I'll take three or four different translations. I'll read it in the King James. I'll read it in the ESV. I'll read it in the NAS. I'll read it in the NIV 84. Um, I'll read it maybe in the Net Bible. And I'll read these different translations, and then I'll see, oh, there's a difference here, and that's going to cause me, when I go then to read the Greek text in preparation, to highlight maybe in my mind some specific words that I might want to do a word study on. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning on the Bible line, our next question comes from Jimmy out of Kimberlin City, Missouri. He writes, during our men's Bible study this week, we were studying in Genesis about Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael away after Isaac was born because of how they were acting towards him. Sarah had asked Abraham to send send him away, and God told Abraham to do so as Sarah asked. Later, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. Here is the question that I came up with that none of us could answer. How could Isaac be Abraham's only son when Ishmael was the firstborn? Well, um, Isaac is the son of promise, and so Ishmael is the firstborn. That's true. But he was not born in the official capacity that God wanted him to be born. And I don't think that you can say, well, Abraham was in rebellion. He didn't understand. And so he knew that he's supposed to have an heir because in Genesis 12, God promised that. Some time passed and there's no children. So Sarah assumes, and and the scripture says Abraham listened to her, that he is supposed to go into Hagar and have a baby through her. And so comes Ishmael. And so when the Lord reaffirms the promise in Genesis 17, Genesis 18, Genesis 21, you discover that 
no, uh, Abraham says, may, you know, may Ishmael, you know, be my heir. And God says, no, that's not my plan. Sarah is going to actually conceive at this time next year. And so he is the son of promise. He is the one through whom the messianic line is going to come. It doesn't mean that God dismissed Ishmael, that Ishmael went to hell. And some people take Romans 9 in that sense. Actually, God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless him, and I'm going to make him a great people. And he has 12 sons that form the 12 Arab nations. Certainly a lot in his lineage were lost, but not all. And I think you'll meet Ishmael in heaven someday. But he was not the son of promise. So it's, it's not contradictory for Genesis 22 or Hebrews 11 to refer to Isaac as Abraham's only son because God is concerned with the promise and with the covenant. In fact, the truth is, is that beyond Ishmael, he then, after his body is renewed and reinvigorated, he, uh, and Sarah dies, he then um, has Keturah. And Keturah becomes his wife, and he has six more children. So the fact is, is that uh, Abraham had a total of eight kids. And yet still, in places like Hebrews 11, Galatians 4, he's called the only son because it is through that son, the son of promise, uh, that the Messiah will come. Good question. You might want to listen to my sermon on Genesis, um, really the whole series on Genesis, but you could go to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, or Genesis 17, uh, and even uh, 21 uh, in 22, because in all those chapters, I deal with the uniqueness of uh, Isaac and how he is... Um, Indeed, the monogene, the only begotten. There's only two people in all the Bible who is called the only begotten son. One is Isaac, and the other is called Jesus, Yeshua. Now, they're only begotten dramatically different, but they're both miracle babies. And Isaac, of course, is a type. He's an illustration of Christ. That's what Hebrews tells us. And it's obvious as you read Genesis chapter uh, 22 that he is a type of Christ just by the way he is sacrificed and all the events that surround that. But again, if you want to do some more in-depth study on this, download the Search the Scriptures app to your phone, and when you're driving, listen to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 22, 17 and 22, and you'll have more theology than you'll know what to do with. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, our next question comes from Jack out of Bluffton, South Carolina. Uh, and he would like to know, what are the diagnostic questions to determine if someone understands the path to salvation? And I think, Jack, your key word there is understand, because it's possible to understand the path to salvation without being saved. And people often blur those issues. Um, there was a Presbyterian uh, pastor who became very famous. His name was D. James Kennedy. In fact, when I first came to a community Bible church and this station was functioning at 3,000 watts, we actually met in a, in a dump, um, literally in a dump where dump trucks would come in and we had a little office in there. Uh, he used to be on this radio station, a Presbyterian guy, and became very famous and famous for what was known as evangelism explosion. He actually didn't originate the so-called diagnostic questions. What he originated 
was maybe popularizing those diagnostic questions. But he was listening to a famous preacher from the 10th Presbyterian Church in, um, in Philadelphia. His name was Barnhouse. Barnhouse. Barnhouse has written some classic commentaries, especially on the book of Romans. And he was 18 years old. He woke up with a hungover, and he turned on the radio, and here was the voice, the booming voice of Donald J. Barnhouse. And the question was, if you were to die today, do you know that you would go to heaven? And the second question was, if you were to die today, are, um, what, and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And um, D. James Kennedy said that was the first sermon he ever listened to with any degree of seriousness. And in the process, he was one and converted to Jesus Christ. He started a, a popular movement in the 1980s called Evangelism Explosion that was trying to um, uh, help uh, lay people, non-professionals, to share the gospel. The challenge with Evangelism Explosion, in my view, was that it was made for someone with the gift of evangelism. And so you memorize this long spiel, and among other things, you memorize the diagnostic questions. I adapted the diagnostic questions uh, when I was on staff with Crusade, and I took the first one and I asked it, if you were to die and God said to you, on, if you were to die today on a scale of zero to 100, zero I don't know, and 100 I'm positive, how certain are you that, it, that you would go to heaven? Are you 25, 50, 75, or 100? I discovered that that question pinpointed it a little bit more precisely when I'm dealing with children, I ask this diagnostic question. As far as I know, this is original with me, uh, but there's nothing new under the sun, so I get that. Uh, I ask little children, if you die today, are you not sure you'd go to heaven? Are you pretty sure you'd go to heaven? Or are you certain, absolutely sure you go to heaven? Are you not sure, pretty sure, real sure? What are you trying to do? Well, if someone's not sure then you know they haven't crossed the line of conversion. If someone says they're 100% sure, it doesn't mean they crossed the line of conversion. I host a meeting a few times every month, two or three times a month. It's called Meet the Pastor. And people come in and they answer those questions. And I would say 30% of lost people will say they're 100%. Why? Because they feel like, well, I've never robbed a bank. I've never murdered anyone. Why wouldn't God let me in? And so they think everything's just fine and dandy when it's obviously not. And so the second question is very revealing. If you were to die and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And you'll get one of four responses. Either I don't know, or they will say good works, or they'll say I believe in God or I believe in Christ. And they might even say that he died and was raised and A, B, C, and D, what I call the Jesus Plus program. Or you will get the answer, grace alone through faith alone. No, I am going to heaven because I put my faith in Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. I'm saved by grace, and that good works are just the fruit. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that because someone can give the right answer that they are saved. I dealt with a person last weekend, and I don't always respond to emails from out of state as a priority. Uh, but I try to answer every question that people send me, but I had written this man not knowing he was from out of state, and I emailed him as a visitor, and he wrote me back and shared his testimony. 
bottom line is he read some booklet that explained it was by grace alone through faith alone. He said he prayed the sinner's prayer and Christ is his savior and he knows he's eternally secure, even though for the last several years he's lived with a woman. And so I called him since he left the phone number and I wasn't about to type out an answer because I didn't have the time. So I called him last Saturday night at 8.30 in the evening and we spent about a half an hour on the phone because I didn't want this guy to think that he was fine because he wasn't. And I think that's why he probably wrote me because there were some doubts in the back of his head. And I said, you know, it's possible that you're saved. It's possible for a Christian to commit any kind of sin. But if you do fall into a pattern of sin, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And I'm not hearing in our conversation that God's met you at the woodshed anywhere. And number two, I said the New Testament would give you very little assurance that your conversion is real. So does understanding precede conversion? Yes. So if a person doesn't know or he thinks good works save or even help save, then he's definitely not saved, not according to the New Testament. You cannot think that good works help save and expect to go to heaven. Either Christ saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he doesn't save you at all. And so that's biblical truth. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is credited as righteousness. So we're out of time. I hope that helps. You might want to take my course at the Institute of Biblical uh, Studies on how to share your faith. I think it would be very useful to you. Good questions. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible Line. God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday at the same time. And if you have questions during the week, you can uh, submit them at Search the Scriptures or at tbl at wagp.net. God bless you as you walk with Christ.